We're putting up new buildings. We're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united. We must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pours to back our log of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builders' labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry. Today we have a uh, cast of thousands. In fact, we've got the three retired chairman, chairpersons of the Inkerlink Board, the Redundancy Fund, which covers so many uh, workers in this state and increasingly in other states. So first of all, we're going to uh, introduce the three ex-chairpersons, and first of all, Tommy Watson. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Ralph. Now, what I'm going to do is ask each of you for a thumbnail of your time with Inkerlink. And in your case, uh, you would have been involved probably from early 90s or was even earlier? No, no, no. 202. 202, but <laughs> in terms of membership... Oh, yeah. And, and, and interlinking and actually getting involved with Inkerlink, it would have been uh, when you joined the FEDFA. Yes, it would have been. And the background to the FEDFA was that it was actually a signatory to the fund, uh, or more precisely, Fund 2 of the Inkerlink uh, portfolio. Uh, at that time, we were the only organisation that was in Fund 1 and Fund 2. Right. Now... In terms of your active participation in the actual administration of Inkerlink, so it's early early 2000s and at that point uh, you had become the branch secretary of the FEDFA branch. Yes, Ralph, I became secretary of the FEDFA branch in late 2001 and then I, I went on the board in February 2002 as the secretary of the FEDFA I was on the board until June 2012, so that was 10 years I was there representing the FEDFA and CFMEU. And then after that, I became chairman. I was I was the chairman from June 2002 to December 2006. So I was, I was on the board in two capacities for about 14 years. During that 14 years, uh, we started Fund 2. And I was one of the originals on Fund 2. We created Fund 2 for a couple of reasons. One was to get what we called met, uh, mixed metal agreements, to get them in, in Inkerlink because they had an all-purpose 
interlinked rate, which couldn't be taken in Fund 1. Also, it covered uh, crane hire. Um, the crane hire people were all in Fund 1. And it was also there to put a bit of a brick wall around the AW because they were in Fund 2. Uh, we didn't want the AW in Fund 1, so we kept them in Fund 2. Heaven forbid. Righto. Now, we'll move on to our second guest, Brian Boyd. Uh, has only just finished as the chairperson of Incalink. And, Brian, you are an original. You've been involved with the fund uh, from day one. Uh, good morning, Ralph. Uh, yes. Uh, as convener of the um, building industry group of unions at Trades Hall, um, I was participating for some time in the original establishment of Incolink or Central Redundancy Fund, as it was called back then. Um, uh, there was a lot of discussions between 1989 and 1991, um, uh, and there was informal meetings of, of setting the fund up. By 1992, the Building Industry Group of Unions asked me to go on board um, on the board, and one of the first jobs we had to do in the following year, 1993, was to appoint a full-time CEO, which was uh, John Glasson. I stayed on as um, a board member all the way through to uh, 2019, where I was then appointed the uh, chairperson and uh, finished that up in December last year, December 2022. So that's been my role over the, all of that time, uh, Ralph. Right, so in terms of the originals, who were the original organisations that were involved in uh, setting up the fund? Well, back then, at the end of the 1980s, there was at least um, 11 uh, building unions. We're now down to three or four, but back then there was um, the BWIU, the ASC&J, um, the uh, Slaters and Tylers, the two plasterers unions, the plumbers, um, the AWU got uh, roped in at the time on the insistence of the state government. Um, all of those, uh, the painters union, uh, I'm trying to think of anything else I've missed out. Brickies. The bricklayers union, uh, Slaters and Tylers, all of those unions, at least 11 or 12 of them, were all involved in the original setting up of the redundancy fund in the late 80s, early 1990s. And uh, the state government had a role to play in this because at that stage it was a Labor state government, well, and at least in the opinion of some people, but anyway, uh, but also there were employer organisations involved as well. Well, that's right. Um, uh, to be quite honest, and, and I think it's worthwhile putting on the record, that post the BLFD registration in 1986, um, the industry parties, and that included the Master Builders Association, the Master Plumbers Association in particular, but also the state government uh, and the building unions uh, that I've mentioned before, all of them got together uh, and had negotiations of trying to at least solve one of the key issues of, um, of the building industry at the time, which was redundancy payments and severance pay claims that were uh, prevalent at the end of each job. So that was, an, that was the reason why the industry parties, the employers and the unions and the state government, got together to set up Incolink. And your time in the uh, fund as an active uh, participant in its management... Uh 
up to very recently with your retirement, has gone on for a whole history of Inkalink. Yeah, up until the end of last year, yes, I've, se- I've seen it from its birth right through to now. At the end of last year, we've reached the over $1 billion value of uh, the redundancy fund uh, package that uh, has been going. So we've reached over $1 billion in that 30-odd years. And, of course, uh, we have now branched into other states. New South Wales with the plumbers and uh, also South Australia and Tasmania. Yes, and, and, and the reason why that is, that, and um, other, other participants will remember this, for some considerable amount of time over the last decade or so in particular, um, Incolink has been a forerunner in what it gives as a service to building workers in Victoria. The other redundancy funds that operated and, and still some of them operate in other states uh, uh, were really very basic in the way they delivered services to their to to building workers. So our model, the built the building industry uh, 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 model from Victoria, caught on, caught caught on in in other states. Um, most of those funds never self generated changes to improve their services. Uh, in the end. Incolink uh, marketed itself to actually move into some of those states to uh, assist in improving their services through redundancy. Could could you let let us know, please, Brian, when you've started on the board, how many members, workers were actually members of Incolink to how many there are today? Um, I think we're over uh, 40,000, 45,000 today. But back then when we first signed people on for the first couple of years, we were the major building sites it would have been, we started with 5,000-odd in the very first year, a couple of years. Right, and our third guest is Brian Welsh. Top of the day. And Brian represented the Master Builders Association of Victoria on the board, both as a CEO and as chairperson, uh, almost as long as Brian. There was a question as to who got in the door first. Well, Mr. Boyd uh, didn't leave much room, uh, but anyway, uh, as it turns out, uh, I, I let a, a short period of time run after I joined Master Builders to take up the opportunity of working on the board of Inkelink, which I began in 1998. Now, gentlemen, it's uh, a question of history always, but interpretations do vary, but I would have thought that we would, as a group, be pretty agreed on the success of Inkelink. And I think people take it almost for granted these days. You talk to people in these interviews and uh, they, you ask them what the great achievements of the industry and Inkelink always comes up. But a lot of people just think it's there. It's a bit like the RACV. It's, it was somewhere in the past and no one worries about it too much now. But... It is actually an area that has been not exactly free of conflict and everyone has had different views as to where it should go and so on. So I'm interested in people's views as to the employer's side, where they think Inkelink may have developed to. and is it, is it part of the culture now? Unquestionably, uh, it is. Uh, and uh, I can't say that um, 
every employer all the time uh, was contributing towards Inkel Lincoln saying this is the best thing I've ever done because it was a grudge commitment. It was an industrial relations outcome. That's what it came from. But if you look at it today in the way that it services the industry, you would be hard-pressed to replicate that and provide what the industry enjoys at a, a multiplicity of levels. Unquestionably, it does good work in uh, even the areas of training where so much money is applied, probably the single largest contributor to training outside of government in the state. Uh, those factors, um, along with all the health, well-being, the issues to do with, and, and they, uh, that I probably have, you've already touched upon, Ralph, but um, provide a safety net for the industry, which if you said we're we going to stop it tomorrow, it would take years to replicate that by any other means. And so I think that there's a, a, a employers now perhaps a little less grudge because of the recognition of how it does support them and their work and their employees. And uh, to that end, I'd say uh, it has a strong measure of support within industry. I, I think one of the strengths of Inkalink is is the way the board was the, the way the board was set up initially. There's equal numbers of employers and equal numbers of unions employees. The chairperson doesn't get a vote, so it, it works on consensus. So everything that comes out of the out of the Inkalink board is a consensus decision, and 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 that can be a strength or a weakness. I think it's a strength. I don't don't know of any organisation in this country where employers and unions meet on a regular basis to talk about industry matters. It certainly doesn't happen in this state that I am aware of. Even the Long Service Leave Board and CBUS, they talk about different issues of what the Inkling Board does. The Inkling Board, they meet on a regular basis with the employers. And I was the first chairman that come from the trade union movement. And when I came in, I was the first one, right? And since then, it's been agreed between the employers and the union, which I 100% agree with, that it's a rotating chairman. So the chairman or chairwoman will rotate every three years, whether it be a union person, person from the, from the union or rank and file, and somebody from the employer. It was never rotated since it's been started till about five or six years ago. So I think the board of Inkalink is the strength of Inkalink. Can, can I go back to um, the, how the benefits and um, how the industry became um, uh, part, uh, Inkalink became part of the industry industrial relations structure that uh, Brian's just referred to. Uh, when, when, when Inkalink started... Uh, the the main in, uh, industrial instrument was called the VBIA, the Victorian Building Industry Agreement, the little green book um, that lasted for a number of years. Um, uh, some of the, your listeners might remember the little green book. In that little green book, there was a number of um, issues that were industry matters, like uh, portable sick leave, uh, um, health issues, suicide prevention, all sorts of bits and pieces were uh, added to the, 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 um, the requirements of the VBIA, the Victorian Building Industry Agreement. What the unions and the employers decided to do at the negotiating table was to go to Incolink on a number of these matters and rather than the employer directly pay for those things, Incolink, as it grew, started funding a number of these issues. 
and that's where the consensus between the employers and unions uh, bore fruit, if you like, for the industry with these ongoing benefits through the VBIA, through Incolink, and right into when EBAs, Enterprise Bargaining Agreements, came into play later in the 2000s. Now, of course, as suggested, the uh, whole scheme came out of some conflict. Originally, it was about 20 bucks, And uh, I think it would be accurate to say that around the city, uh, back in the mid-'80s, there was a whole lot of things happening, everything from the deregistration of the BLF to organisations <coughs> amalgamating to changes in the legal uh, framework in which it, people operated. But one thing that you did refer to earlier, Brian, was the need to deal with the issue of redundancy and severance. And the 20 bucks was the original claim. And uh, where it was won, the employer held that money till the person finished. But of course, uh, there were arguments about who was going to stay in business, who wasn't, uh, who was going to be... Uh, found to have the money in the bank and who isn't. So there was an agreement about a central fund and the Incolink brand name is actually the, uh, if you like, the banner head for the Central Redundancy Fund. And the Central Redundancy Fund probably, when it began, as you suggested earlier, maybe had 5,000 members. I'd have some doubts it would be even that high. Because I would have thought that in the early, early days where that $20 was being achieved, there was only probably a couple of thousand people. It got to 5,000 quickly once Mm. there was a central fund set up. Mm. But there was a lot of pushing and shoving at that time. Maybe you'd like to talk about some of the pushing and shoving, gentlemen. Well, um, I wasn't party to that at that stage. It was just a bit before my commencement at MBA. But it, it was an unquestionable part of the firmament. Once it was agreed to, that there was no reneging on that. And so it, there was never a, 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 an exit or an attempted exit, and to my knowledge. I think the, the, going back to Tommy's point, though, is that um, the consensus viewpoint is one which has uh, provided it a greater safety than if it had been one-sided one way or the other. Um, it generally meant that you'd be foolish to uh, arrive at a board meeting without uh, an idea of how that motion was going to go. And you did your homework beforehand. So the, the board meetings were uh, not hostile, although people are always prone to have a bit of a slug once in a while. But it was a, a, a good environment in which to sensibly debate issues. So um, that's my comment about, the, uh, about uh, how the board functioned. It functioned well, uh, as I've sat on many boards, and it did function well uh, but it, uh, the issue of how it started, uh, I'm sure that it was going to be a, a case of, as ever, the police force of the building industry, the CFMU and other primary unions, to make sure that uh, their workers understood the significance and that they had the compliance, and the employers uh, particularly so. So it was not like a traditional membership regime where you ask people to join and it was a voluntary arrangement. These things were, um, in effect, a mandated part of the industry's operation. I'll own up to a bit of the pushing and shoving that you're suggesting um, 
Ralph, um, back in the back in the late eighties when the concept heaven forbid. Back in the early late eighties when the the concept of having a central fund was being Still established. Another book coming. And <laughs> the, the um, last one didn't sell. <laughs> This one won't sell either. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, uh, the BIG, the Building Industry Group of Unions, uh, had a campaign, ongoing campaign for a year or two in the early days to try and maximise the economy of scale of how many people were actually getting the, uh, uh, the redundancy payment through their employer so that to justify setting up a central fund in the first place. So as you say, we might have even started off with a couple of thousand before we got to 5,000 in the early 90s. Um, the idea was to get that economy of scale to justify setting up the, um, the, the fund in the first place and get enough economy of scale, enough money together to justify setting up the fund. And that was done industrially on the site, site by site. I remember only too well yeah. going down to the office, which I think was originally down somewhere in Collingwood, Abbotsford, somewhere down there, yes. <laughs> and actually going through the uh, records of some people when the Central Fund was first started and that period of a couple of years before the Central Fund was a mess and there was people who clearly were not going to be paid. If they didn't get the money when they left the job, trying to get it later was going to be impossible without a central fund. No other way it could have operated. Uh, after all, you were in attempting to secure the rights of workers. That was the intent of it. And if the employer had gone bad, gone broke, gone out of business, for whatever reason, sometimes beyond their control, obviously, not always a case of mismanagement, then those circumstances meant that they had to have the money elsewhere. That was as simple as it was. So the creation of a fund, I think, was just axiomatic to its success. Well, well, the fund was created at a conflict, no doubt about that. I mean, I was a union official for 33 years and the worst time that in my time was the deregistration of the BLF. It turned the union movement into cannibals. I mean, we... We were just told to go out and sign, sign BL, sign, 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 get the membership before another union got the membership, and and it, and it wasn't a good, it wasn't a proud time certainly in Victoria, uh, to be a union official, but redundancy came from that conflict. If we hadn't had that conflict, we might not have Inkling today. Who knows? But Inkling today is is I don't know when it first started, building trades got it. Metal trades working in construction didn't get it. It was only the building trades. Since then, it's flowed to everybody in construction. It doesn't matter who you work for. Plumbers, ETU, metal trades, it makes no difference. Everybody gets some form of inkling. And off-site. And off-site too, that which never applied. And I'm not sure if there's any organisation in this country or the world, honestly, that covers a worker who falls out of a tree on a weekend. I mean, if you if you give twenty dollars to Seabus, there's no guarantee you're going to get the twenty dollars back. You could get twenty two dollars, or you can get eighteen dollars. When the employer puts the money into Interlink, the workers guaranteed every cent comes back, and then the interest that's accrued pays for all the insurances, all the ambulance cover, all the you know the make up wages cover, all, all everything comes out of interest and the worker still gets the same amount of money that the employer put in. And with super, that's not guaranteed that way. I wonder, Ralph, whether it's worth mentioning perhaps for the employers that may be listening, 
um, if they have no uh, direct relationship with Inkalink or don't read its, uh, its information, they may not be aware that even though we speak of a billion dollars of funds under management, that is precisely what it is. It's funds under management. It's workers' funds. And to that, to that end, the activities of Inkalink uh, are administered on a basis of making a, re- a return on investments to cover the overheads which are substantial. Uh, to fund all the services that are in existence today. And I don't suppose it was a more challenging period than the, in the last few years where we've seen turmoil in the financial institutions. Uh, and if you didn't have the right um, settings in terms of liquidity to the organisation to meet those and, and not be tied up in long-term investments, then it would have been a threat to the ability to pay out workers when their entitlements fell due. And from my now more distant observation of these things, that period went fairly smoothly. And uh, there was a, a, a deft handling of the, uh, of the assets uh, of the members to generate sufficient cash flow to pay for all of that. So I think it was the first baptism of fire that the organisation financially had gone through since the, the World Financial Crisis 2008. So... Um, I'd say there's a bit of a thumbs up there for business management. And can I add another issue uh, about another crisis uh, that the industry faced, and that was the COVID pandemic Mm -hmm. where Incolink and uh, with its its, um, stakeholders, the employers and unions, working together to make sure that Incolink could look after people during the COVID pandemic, and, 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 and it did. Uh, there was a, a reasonable uh, concern at the beginning of the pandemic that um, there might be a run on the fund and, and we would lose that basis of generating uh, that interest uh, money that we could use. But in the end, it held together and the money was used to uh, go out and help people get vaccinated and uh, work together collectively and cooperatively on the building sites. And people could also draw on their accounts for hardship payments. Yes. But... Just to go back, because I'm trying to build the picture of the development of Inkalink. Inkalink came out of the civil war that went on in the industry from the mid-80s through. Now, that was almost immediately followed in the early 90s by a recession, which what I would, would have thought was the other major challenge to the financial uh, stability of the fund. So can we reflect on that a bit? Well, I think the, I was on the board at the time and the viability of the fund was uh, was definitely uh, in the front thinking of the board at the time about the viability of the fund uh, because of that recession. Um, and what happened at one stage, uh, there was uh, a reduction in some of the things that we were planning to uh, service uh, building workers to make sure that the fund survived that period of time, which it did. But there was a, a lot of time spent on getting uh, le- uh, not legal advice but financial advice to make sure we kept the uh, fund alive. How desperate was the situation, say, ninety one, ninety two? Quite desperate because it was the early days. The fund could have fallen over if we didn't act on the financial advice that we were getting almost daily. Now, have there been any other periods of difficulty for the operation of the fund? I mean, the uh, global financial crisis, uh, I was on the board at that time and like it was, it was a big issue, but maybe 
by comparison to COVID and by comparison to the 1990 recession, it was actually fairly smooth. Well, because the economic scale of the size of the fund at that stage by 2008-09, the, the financial crisis, it was large enough to be able to uh, look after itself. And, and I agree with what Brian said. I mean, the board invested money wisely, mm. no doubt about that. It was invested wisely. We, we're getting returns. And when the financial crisis hit us, we weren't getting the same returns, but we still had enough money there to cover any 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 situation. And and one, one of the key things, and Brian uh, alluded to it earlier, one of the key services that the Inca Link played was uh, funding uh, OH&S training and training in general to the industry, both to employer organisations and union organisations. Those amounts of money were quite substantial, but in 2008-09, the the financial crisis, the the industry parties agreed to curtail their tapping into their their ability to uh, take training money until we come out the other end. Ralph, um, the picture wouldn't be complete without the interjections of government from time to time in these affairs. And it would be fair to say that the uh, coalition or Liberal government uh, uh, at the time were trying to uh, uh, chip a bit away at Inkerlink and other funds which they saw as union slush funds, their words. Um, And they uh, had an assault on uh, portable sick leave. They had an assault on whether the funds were being properly dispensed and to how, how they were dispensed. And there was considerable scrutiny given to that, uh, certainly over my time. Um, and I understand the motive and I understand the, the rationale, but uh, in all those cases there was a path through that which was uh, met the letter of the law entirely. But they could have brought about a major disruption to the organisation because if Inkerlink uh, was no longer there to service these things, it would have been back to the industry, one imagines, to find a way to repair, rebuild or replace what it was. So those, those events which uh, happened to the side were even not as brutal and played out in the media perhaps as the BLF upheavals, um, all of that, but they nonetheless were as threatening to its, uh, its ongoing operation uh, and it survived and it did so in a completely lawful manner. Well, Brian, you're absolutely correct and you reminded me of this because some of us spent some time in Canberra lobbying people about a certain package of legislation that was particularly aimed at Incolink. Uh, that the Conservative government uh, five or six years ago drafted up and it got bounced around both by the lobbying thing that uh, both the employers and unions were doing but also with other issues that uh, were uh, um, bothering the federal government at the time. But that legislation hung around all for the last five or six years up until the, uh, the election of the Labor government last year. So that that legislation was particularly aimed at undermining the services that Incolink provided. Now, the other issue that uh, is of interest, I think, to the listeners would be the development of the services. There's been reference to those services. But the first service was to, in fact, collect the severance, redundancy money, have it available for a person at quite short notice, really, by comparison to other institutions, have access to their money in case of redundancy or or severance. Now, the agreement, the Victorian Building Industry Agreement, stayed in place till 2005, and there were a number of changes to what was offered. So it wasn't just Incolink, it was also, as earlier mentioned, 
It was the result of industrial negotiations. Now, going back in memory, what was the first service that Inkling provided other than just collect the uh, severance pay? Uh, Can I just talk about the severance pay before Brian talks about the other? The creation of Inkling, you have service to the industry, not to the employer. We would have a situation where I don't know, 20, 30% of people would get long service leave in this industry. The vast majority would not. So what we created was service to the industry. Same with, same with super, that serve, you know, and, and sick pay, service to the industry. Because as you know, this is transit industry. A lot of people would not get benefits at all. Brian talked about the benefits. But if we didn't have that, people wouldn't even get long service leave in this industry. Well, just to go back to your question, my recollection of the one, the, the biggest sort of um, additional service that uh, Incolink provided to the industry, and it came out of uh, VBIA negotiations between the employers and unions, was portable sick leave. That was the big one that I can remember in the mid-90s that took a couple of years to put into place, um, portable sick leave. Now, of course, there is no fund that I'm aware of or service anywhere internationally where people's sick leave, which is given some kind of portable status, uh, is in fact administered centrally and kept in place for the benefit of the employee. But it's not actually a fund, it's actually an insurance policy. That's right. Now, a lot of people don't understand that, but you might like to just reflect on... Well, I, I can, and this is where we have to bring in um, uh, the insurance broker that Incolink has used for a, a long time now, Windsor Management. Windsor Management, who work on behalf of QBE, uh, the insurance uh, company itself, came up with uh, a number of packages over the years, but the one that, that um, you correctly indicate is it's unique that QBE actually underwrites portable sick leave in the state of Victoria for building workers. And that was negotiated by Windsor Management with QBE and Incolink. And uh, the rate per week for an employer was, if I remember correctly, uh, $1.50 and 15% GST. Now, it's only recently gone up so that the actual cost structure uh, for Incolink was protected because there was a fairly substantial subsidy for that insurance policy coming direct from the surpluses generated by Incolink. But I would have thought there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about just what is on offer. When you go back to the early mid-90s when this issue became a problem, do you think people understood it then? I'm not sure they understand it now. No. Well, that's my point. <laughs> well, your point's correct. I mean, it was supposed to only go to a maximum of 100 sick days, right? And you're correct. The employers pay in so much towards it and have never re- that, that amount that the employers pay have never really been tackled by the industry parties. Until recently. Until recently. And, 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 and Incolink has under, underwritten um, the, 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 the policy. Uh, to, to supplement the, the employer contribution. And it's been um, an issue about making portable uh, sick leave um, still viable, uh, a, a crucial financial question for Incolink for a number of years. You're correct. 
Now, that insurance policy is obviously been of great benefit to people and including uh, more recently with the COVID uh, epidemic. But in terms of a proportion of the industry getting portable sick leave, we haven't discriminated across the various sectors. Everyone's got the same deal. Originally it was a deal under the Victorian Building Industry Agreement, now it's a deal across all members of the fund. So that was a major change. What other changes... All members of the fund within Victoria yes. or outside Victoria? Well, outside Victoria is still a uh, case uh, of development. Tasmania does not have the same kind of uh, benefits as Victoria. New South Wales with the plumbers and South Australia are developing those funds as their reserves build up. Ralph, are you not referring to the fact that some unions uh, had members belonging to or getting aspects of uh, employer contributions from Inkling, but they were not involved in the um, insurance uh, portable sick leave the same way as the builders were, but that decision was made to change that to make it all embracing so that all workers under the scheme. It was an act of generosity on Inkerling's behalf to take that step. Is that the, what you're driving at? Uh, solidarity is a great thing, Brian. Oh, so I thought that might have been something. Eh? <laughs> so the Portable Sick League was the first big development. What are the other developments? Because I can remember during the uh, Kennett government era, there were some other things that were taken away or costs were increased and uh, Inkerling had to step in as part of the outcome of negotiations. Ambulance cover used to be... A lot of a lot of employers paid ambulance cover, not in this industry, but certainly in the oil and the chemical industry, and then it became a fringe benefit. I can remember on the board once that there was a, a member driving along in Mildura, had a car accident, woke up in the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, got a bill for $24,000, and that, that was paid. Inkling board paid that money. So the ambulance cover is, came out of fringe benefits and I think the ambulance cover, we don't appreciate how much the, the members really appreciate that because the cost of ambulance cover now has gone through the roof. And I, and I think that, I think um, wages, if you have an accident on the weekend, you know, I'm not talking about sport and all that, but you get, you get an X amount of dollars for, I think it's three years now. Income protection. Income protection. So I think those two things and, and the poor sick leave really stand out, certainly with the workers on building sites. So just for the benefit of those listening, when were those reforms introduced? What sequence did they follow and how much was simply negotiated outcomes and how much was a reaction, as I suggest, to some of the changes, especially with workers' compensation, that were made by the Kennett government in the mid-90s, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling first. to try and remember, but because yeah. we were blowing about portable sick leave, uh, the Kennett government did uh, do other things that we had to react to. So it, it, it'll be the later 90s yeah. that those things were uh, came in as a response to what the government was doing, the state government was doing. Now, in terms of the members of the fund and the benefit they receive, has it always been fully understood, do you think, by the employee members and the employer members what's actually happening? Because most people, my experience, get a statement, they look at it, they look at the bottom line and that's about it. No one thinks 
about the total package. Do we think we have actually succeeded with presenting to the employer members, the employee members, a full view of the package? And have we got better as time has passed or was it maybe better understood in the early days when it was a bit simpler? Uh, I, I will address the employer perspective because uh, the unions rarely wanted me or anyone else from the MBAV to be involved in their discussions with the workers. <laughs> but putting that to one side, uh, the, the issue of um, how this played out was to do with the uh, ability of the em- employers to uh, absorb this information. The reality really is that uh, over a long period of time, I've certainly argued the fact that there needed to be a conscious program of awareness uh, to employers because you assume that they might read the Inkalink magazine or they might read the information that goes to their organisation. It's the bookkeepers, it's the accounts people and the organisations that have the greatest contact in in most employer organisations with what's going on. Some larger-scale employers take uh, a greater note, but I think there's a job of work to be done to provide information to employers so that they can get a better appreciation of the gamut of services on offer and how they can best use it, including uh, using the training funds um, uh, through the mechanisms that are available for them to enhance the competencies of their own staff. So there's, if you don't know about it, you don't use it. And, and there is a, a factor there that I think we should be um, zeroing in on. Um, uh, maybe that's been addressed since my departure, but I think that there, there was certainly... Uh, I think an underperformance in knowledge amongst employers, they just paid, and that was as simple as it was. I, I've got a, a slightly different angle from for, for, for that, and I've got to bring in the, the villain in the piece, one of the villains in the piece over the last 10 to 15 years besides the NBA, uh, and that's the ABCC, the Australian Building Construction um, Commission, because um, it restricted how union officials could get on site and it also restricted how um, job delegates and shop stewards could operate on site. Um, a key thing about awareness that the issue you're raising, Ralph, is a very important one and has been all the way my 30 or 40 years in the industry. If you've got a good delegate or a shop steward or organiser, not only does he check a union ticket, for, for, uh, but he also looks for the long service leave ticket the C-bus ticket and the um, uh, Inkolink ticket. So you got it all fits in and then you can explain that to people about what um, they're entitled to. Now that got restricted. Checking those uh, entitlements across the board, including Inkolink, were really restricted by the operations of the ABCC over recent years. That's definitely true, but a lot of people don't quite appreciate the amount of... Confusion there is out there, especially with those where English is a second language. And we, I think, as a a fund, have been very lucky not to have experienced a whole lot more fraud and uh, basically uh, abuse of employees. There's been more than enough. But I would have thought that one of the issues that we have to see, and I'm interested in your experience, we have to see is what happens with the people out there who are not necessarily comprehending what it actually means to them. Uh, I just think that there's been very, as I said, very few uh, fraudulent claims, but there's been a lot of confusion. A lot of people just don't understand that they've got money sitting there for when they're unemployed and they get taken advantage of. 
I mean, that's, there's nothing surer than that. Are we moving quickly enough as the economy regenerates and migration increases again? Are we doing enough to actually protect people who are somewhat limited in their understanding of what goes on? Well, let's be honest, um, Ralph. Um, uh, as when you say, are we doing enough? That's, it, if we, can't have it, we can't have it both ways. We can't say that we helped achieve long service leave way back in the 70s and CBUS in the 80s and, and Incolink in the late 80s. We can't take credit for all those things unless we take responsibility also for educating the workforce. So it's a, to me, the unions are, in, uh, are obligated to uh, get the word out there about what their members and their potential members are entitled to. When I first came on the board, we had no coordinators. Now we have, I'm assuming we've still got two coordinators. They go to shop stewards meetings, address shop stewards meetings, mm. they, they call meetings on sites. Um, and my understanding is that the app's gone a long way to fix that problem. Uh, you can get an app on your, on your phone, tells you, I don't think it tells you everything, but it tells you what you've got there and all that. And we've also brought in genuine redundancy. That, that wasn't there when I first came on the board and, and a lot of people are aware of that. But it, it gets to the stage where there, a lot of people don't listen, really. You know, if you go on a job, call everybody in the shed, talk to them for, for a half an hour about EBAs, unions, politics, Incolink, whatever, they take notice of probably ten minutes of it. And it's, I, I don't know if the unions can do any more, maybe another couple of more coordinators... The, the, the newspaper goes out monthly, I'm assuming. It, it, it still goes out monthly. So there is, there is a bit of interaction. Email. Email, mm. is it? So if you haven't got an email, you don't get it. Mm. No, I, I wasn't aware of that. Still, your, your point's valid. Uh, there is none so deaf as those who will not listen. Uh, so if people tune out, they tune out. Um, but there is, uh, my, my, going back to my point, Ralph, if there was a, a, a different environment that was cast upon this industry where it was entirely voluntary for employers to make a contribution, let's just say that was the circumstances that confronted the industry, would there be sufficient groundswell of support amongst employers to say they'd like it to continue? And if you don't plumb that, you don't work at that, then you'll reap what you sow in terms of whether there's going to be enjoy the support that you would need to keep it in place. So I think that there's a that's a, a challenge, a, a primary challenge, uh, to to think of what risks you may face and how you might deal with them. I think there is an ongoing job, Brian Boyd. That is mm. that uh, there is an ongoing job of communication that rightly does fall to the unions mm. because it reinforces what they have delivered over the years, if nothing else. So uh, I, not doing it, um, it would be a mistake. I agree. Now, just one thing that I think, just in my head, is always been a bit of a problem, is that people don't quite appreciate the legal position of employers when it comes to redundancy severance. There is, under the award, there is, under the National Employment Standards and so on, an obligation, and there was an obligation back in the 80s, and that's why there was conflict, because people were getting uh, retrenched there's a lot of coming and going in the industry up till 1990. There was a, a recession, there was a bit of a boom, there was another recession, then there was a big boom in the late 80s and then there was a big recession. And so there was a lot of retrenchment and a lot of people basically 
find and their employer had disappeared off the face of the earth. But there's an obligation and what the fund actually did was provide a simple one-stop shop for employers to get their obligations in place. The money was there because otherwise it became an individual argument. Worker by worker, site by site, project by project. And that is probably point of Brian's uh, comment, why employers, when it comes down to it, are always going to be a little bit more in favour of a central fund than not having it because then it becomes a big problem for them if it's not. Debt transmission is a terrible thing and that's what generally happens in this industry. And I don't think people understand that. There is a, a, a basic obligation, legal obligation, which then has to be dealt with. The industry is good at creating problems. It's actually quite good when it puts its mind to it at solving problems. And this is, Inkalink was the solution to a problem that was very difficult to control and made worse by the growth of the industry. I think one thing the trade union movement is good for is not blowing its own trumpet. For years and years, we, we don't blow our own trumpet. We, we don't... Tell people what we've achieved and what we've done. It's something that the trade union just have a look at the records and history books and all sorts of things. There's not a lot of history of the trade union movement because we don't talk to people what we achieve. The big builders, there is no issue with the big builders knowing <coughs> what entitlements. It's the small subbies. They're the, they're the, they're the ones that fall between the cracks. And when they come on a large building site, they get. You know, they, they do the right thing. When they go away, sometimes they do the wrong thing. And, and that's just, a, a, that's just a, the way the industry works. It's not a great thing, but that's the way it works. And I think it'll always be that way. So looking back at uh, the fund and how it's developed, is it possible, practically, financially, to expand the fund across Australia? Is bigger better? Not mm-hmm. always. Yes. I mean... <laughs> If you have a look at Kelsey's dream of big unions. And just for those who don't know who he is. <laughs> Who's Kelty? That, <laughs> that man of the past. Bill Kelty was in fact secretary of the ACTU and uh, responsible in the 80s and 90s for a massive amount of change. Now he came back from a meeting in 80, 1987 from Sweden about yeah. big unions are better and sold it to everybody else. And it was supposed to be industry-based unions. But what happened is after amalgamations were politically based. The right-wingers went into a group, the left-wingers went into another group, and it didn't really work no, as we, it was supposed to. We had political amalgamations, yeah, political, not industrial amalgamations. Right. I mean, the iron workers and the metal trades should have amalgamated. Yeah. The TWU and the Storm and Packers should have amalgamated. I mean, things that stick out. I think Inklink is, is ready to cover the whole industry in the whole country, but there'd have to be glass, a grassroots input. Like in New South Wales, you'd have the main board, I suppose, here, but you'd have to have some organisation that the workers can see. It's, it, it, it is New South Wales, but it's also the head offices in Victoria, something like that. And, and the small – I don't know how Western Australia continues financially or Queensland, you know. I mean, it'll get to the stage where there will be one fund, no doubt about that. I remember when I was on the board with a national fund – and I m- moved a resolution that we have a working party to sit down and talk about 
to uh, go to a national fund and report back to the next national meeting, right? I never even got a secondary outside of Victoria. No, they, they, they said it was a takeover. It's not a takeover. It's better for the industry. It's better for employers and it's better for, for rank and file people. It's proven Victoria. I mean, the model is a, it's not perfect, but, it, but it's a good model that we have in Victoria. Uh, Tommy, um, uh, your point point's valid. Um, there is a paranoia about Inkalink amongst other states because they're all, uh, excuse the French, minnows by comparison. Um, and they have different structures. This is like Jacob's coat, referring to the Bible, uh, because you have so many different um, arrangements for structures for these things. Some are entirely insurance-based. If they can't meet the premium, all of the benefits fall away. There's no accrued um, monies left in the same way as there is a central fund for inkling. So if we were to absorb other states, do we accrue their liabilities at the same time? And how long would it take for us to absorb that and at what cost? I think there's some of the, the very pertinent questions that have to be asked because as much as I think it would be there's an inevitability about there being a national fund, it can't be on the ground rules that currently exist because it could be injurious to this organisation. So you'd have to be careful about the way you went forward and that's clearly what's happening. It's not happening in a headlong rush, never mind the parochial attitudes of some states. If those workers want the same sort of protection and security that Inkalink affords, I think it's going to be a job to put it in place and we all have to work together to get there. It's not going to be a case of just a takeover. That can't happen, I don't think. The, um, the idea of a national fund, uh, and I can remember Tommy moving that resolution at a conference, a national conference of redundancy funds ages ago. So the concept has been around for some considerable time. Also, the um, CEOs of all the, of all the um, redundancy funds around the country used to meet separately to conferences. Um, and uh, the CEOs like uh, John Glasson would go to a meeting at Melbourne Airport and meet everybody and have a chat about it. On the agenda was always moving towards a national fund. Uh, and all we got back from all the CEOs that ever went to these meetings was resistance to the concept along with... Um, and I'll come to the paranoia in a minute. Um, the, uh, what, what's happened in the... In the, in the, in the um, in the meantime, is there's been a, a what I would say a two-stage approach. So at the moment, Incolink is offering um, administration services to the funds who are so little minnows they were called, you know, like Tasmania, um, uh, South Australia, whoever whoever's interested in being looked after, and and the plumbers have got a separate one with their people in New South Wales as well. It's all administration. It's not Incolink taking them over as such. It's offering their services to uh, administer them economically better than how they're travelling at the moment, with the longer-term view, stage two, of having a national fund. Um, That's we take Tasmania, for instance, because up until um, last year... um, We've spent two years down, uh, Inkerling spent two years down there trying to get uh, an eco- economic, ec- economy of scale down there with a number of, at least we got up to 300 workers to be part of the fund um, and that economy of scale was still not enough to justify our input uh, in, in the Tassie, but we pers- persisted. New South Wales is looking better in terms of economy of scale um, and the offer in South Australia is also being pursued um, uh, to try and make it all, all work. 
But um, Tassie's an interesting thing because uh, we, we tried to work with um, the MBA down in Tasmania about joining together and apparently there were people going down there um, who were on the board of Incolink uh, undermining um, the MBA's uh, um, uh, ability to uh, join forces. But, you know... We, we're well aware of how that uh, right. operated. I don't, I don't know that <laughs> well, that's an accurate rendition of what happened at all. We've thrown some controversy. <laughs> just just well, blame it on the other folks. guy, right? That's okay, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so we'll take that as uh, – we'll strike that from the evidence, show, <laughs> Mr Judge. Well, the problem with Tasmania is scale. Yes. Uh, it's varied between uh, 300 to 400 to over 700 because one job – Royal Hobart Hospital, uh, suddenly made it very viable. But then, of course, the job finishes, like every, every job finishes in our industry, and uh, suddenly things are not so viable for employers, for, for funds like Incolink and for unions. So it's a problem. It may be worthwhile, and I, I may seem foolish because uh, I'm behind the, the pace here, but... In New South Wales, the scheme there worked on two people. Administratively, that was a very low cost base, right? Uh, They were counting the monies that came in and pigeonholing it according to uh, the individual workers to their account. And then at the end of the year, they had a reckoning and then added interest to that account. And that was where and how New South Wales operated. For them to think that they could go to a system which operates like Victoria where there is no interest on the, on the sums that are collected because that money is in, reinvested back into providing the services we have. That becomes an interesting discussion point for both unions and employers about which structure they prefer. And uh, I think Inkling's a glowing example of Model A, Model B, uh, the, what protection do construction workers in New South Wales have, a.k.a. Inkling? They don't. And, and is that a good thing for them? Well, I would think not, particularly in the times and circumstances you spoke of before, um, where they had, Tommy, where they had this $28,000 bill for being ambulance, ambulance to uh, a metropolitan hospital. Who could withstand that? You needed, needed some sort of big brother to be able to help you out in those circumstances. That's precisely what Inkling does. But I think the workers in New South Wales are screaming out to come to be part of Inkling or part of the structure in some way. I mean, they certainly get interest, but they pay tax on the interest. Mm. There was a mate of mine who worked in New South Wales and he got a cheque at the end of the year for $2.68. <laughs> That's all he got mm. because there was, there was, there was no, nothing accruing, interest rates were low, and what little he got, he, he lost, I think he lost $2 in tax or something. I can't remember what it was. So when you look at that and look at Inkerlink, workers in New South Wales say, well, we want to be a part of that. Certainly. And, and the mechanism's going to be difficult, no doubt about it. But just because it's difficult, it doesn't mean Inkalink shouldn't try. Well, that does raise a couple of issues. One is the, if you like, the experiment that is currently in place with the plumbers in New South Wales who have joined a special fund for them within the auspices of Inkalink. And I think that'll probably set the pace for the rest of New South Wales because people are seeing that they are getting a benefit. And in terms of my second thought, without 
suggesting this is the way forward in every negotiation. In the last Victorian industry agreement between uh, employers and the CFMEU, the amount of money going to redundancy as opposed to wages was uh, quite a dramatic change. Uh, One, was in the middle of the COVID uh, epidemic. Two, there was plenty of economic uh, bad news on the horizon, which maybe hasn't quite happened as bad as predicted, but uh, people actually decided to take the increase that was on the table in redundancy uh, inc- payment increases instead of wages. And, uh, of course, bosses don't pay payroll tax on redundancy. I wish I hadn't said that because someone from the state government listening, they'll probably think about it. Can I, can I just uh, address... Uh, I think you're right, the experiment with the Plumbers Union and... Uh, and Incolink in New South Wales is 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 being looked at very closely, but the secret of what's happening with the, that is that, as I understand it, the plumbers have uh, major understandings and, and agreements with their employers in making that happen. So you go back to Tasmania. I hate to harp on that, but one of the key builders in Tasmania is called Voss, and if you can't have Voss on side. And they, they're being uh, made paranoid about the CFMEU by forces unknown. Then you're in trouble in terms of how um, how you can get, spread the word in Tasmania. You really need the employers on side if we're going to spread this, the concept nationwide. They need to understand that there's a benefit in it for them. Well, the good news I think is that Voss uh, have done a new agreement and. Uh, the Incolink option is uh, front and centre. But a, a lot of large employers have staff in Incolink. I mean, you go onto a building site and there's always an office and a structure, you know, the receptionist and all that, and a lot of them are in Incolink as part of their package, mm. their wage package. Mm. You know, and, and the more of that that happens, the better it will be to get get the, the good part about Inkling spread around because I know a lot of staff people that are on Inkling. I don't I'm not sure about foreman and all that, but certainly office staff on building sites, a lot of them are in Inkling. Well my memory is uh, just thinking about an old football friend of mine. The best thing that ever happened to him in terms of his employment as a foreman with a uh, significant formwork company was one, he got a nine day fortnight and two, he got Inkling. And uh, when he retired, he was a very happy chappy. Now, let's talk, if we can, about maybe some of the failings or failures in Inkalink over the years. And I'd give one example, and that would be the problem of extending the workers' compensation make-up pay. It's... Still a matter of some confusion out there and I don't think it has been explained to people and the policies, the insurance policies and so on that are in place are still a problem. I think workers' compensation generally is a problem but uh, do you think that is an accurate reflection of where it's at and would you call it a failure well, or, or a lesser success? Well, uh, 
Um, just get, just uh, bear with me if I'm if I'm wrong. But basically, you've got a workers' compensation system in Victoria, and the policy is there to assist that or or, or be an adjunct to it. Yes. Um, but you have to rely back on what's happening with with uh, work cover first before you can implement our policy in IncoLink. So there's that disconnect, as I understand it, that's caused problems. Um, and uh, and it, complica- it complicates the insurance package that we've got to get it to supplement it. That, and that supplementary payment was introduced after the Kennett government changed the rules. That's right. And uh, I just think that, unfortunately, it is one of those issues that has flown under the... Under the uh, radar for some time. Yeah, but it came, it came up to actually try and solve a problem. Yes. Um, and to assist building workers uh, who, were, who were facing workers' compensation claims and so on. But because you had to rely on the first thing happening properly first before you could uh, access the this insurance package that, we, that IncoLink was offering, it's, it's been messy rather than a mistake. Well, because it sits... Uh, mm next to income protection yeah. and what is the claim. If it's a claim outside work, it's pretty straightforward, but inside work it becomes a far more difficult That's right. thing. So is that an area, I'm not going to call it a failure, I'll correct myself, but say it's an area of less success. Are there other areas of less success than perhaps our aspirations yeah, have I been think, over the I think there's journey? a couple of issues where we could have did, uh, done better. Um, genuine redundancy. We certainly sat on it too long, in my judgment. We could have brought it in earlier. But, you know, it was new. We were worried about tax. We were flying up to Canberra, meeting politicians. That could have come in earlier. And I also think the ETU leaving Inkerlink and starting a competing fund, Protect, I think we, we we should have done more to keep them within Inkerlink. But we didn't. So they, they left and they put a competing fund. I don't think the fund is anywhere near as good as Inkerlink, but it's certainly got quite a few members in it, you know, in the ETU and I think the MUA, AW might be in it now. So I think those two things we could have handled better. Well, the, the, the history of it is, um, is that um, originally the secretary of the ETU said, if you put me on the board... Um, I'll stay in Inkolink, and the board didn't vote for him to be on the board. That's what happened. So he then said, I'm out. So you've got to get down to the nitty-gritty of how that all happened. It was a bit messy. And, of course, they did take with them to protect a big chunk of the AMWU's membership who uh, basically took took the money and uh, off they went. By contrast, uh, a lot in the power industry in La Trobe Valley uh, stayed in Inkalink and probably still are there. Again, the off-site area was always a problem and the AWU, well, I'll say no more. They can go where they like. Now, you don't have any of those uh, particular prejudices, Brian, so feel free to comment. Um, I, I hate to uh, to uh, stick my finger in someone else's wound because that's uh, it's entirely a, a terrible thing to do. But I, I, I just one thing about uh, what we could do to the future is is look at having to make the fund more resilient 
or, and it's stronger, is to, is to look at this business of uh, how funds are dispensed. It is a, a potential um, sore point because if, if there is not uh, an excellent accounting for all monies being paid out in training and that money, money properly acquitted, then that'll be an opportunity for someone to come along and say that something's not quite right. I don't think we can ever do enough in that space. Um, and that goes for uh, the major parties and the minor parties. In my time, I've seen minor parties, um, and regrettably some on the employer side, that didn't do what they should have done and didn't acquit the money properly, and they were, they were, they were held to account for it. They were. Um, so it's not like anyone's got away with it, but I just think that this is an area which is fertile for uh, accusation from outside sources that wish to say, is this being done? It's a fair amount of money that's uh, put out each year um, with the increase in contributions in redundancy payments, I suppose that would mean that the increase in training funds going out. So it's probably well beyond $20 million these days, maybe upwards of 40 So I think that there's, uh, there is scope there for improvement um, if there's, uh, and to make it more robust than it has been because that's, a, that's the duty of care you must have in an organisation to look at potential threats and to deal with them. I think that is one which I think could, we could uh, redouble our efforts and it could be well spent. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and um, and 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 no one, none of the industry parties should be worried about scrutiny about how they handle their grant money. But Brian, you you've been on the board for a while, and you were chair for a while, and so was I. You know that the board spent a lot of time on scrutiny of grants. You know that a whole re- regime has been put in place over the years about scrutiny of grants. In fact, you insisted on it when you were chairman. So, so still singing the same song. Yeah, you are. But, but just, but bear in mind that there's a lot of scrutiny that has been put in place over the years. Won't dispute that, Brian. I just think that the, it's not as if I point to a significant problem that I know about. I don't. There is no area which I say is a, a clear failing, but just that the lessons from the past about how people magnify issues in the industry to be greater than they are, if there's a hint, then it's no good. We should make sure that we're absolutely... Don't disagree about it. Squeaky clean. Don't disagree about the need for scrutiny, mm. but as you well know, I'm just emphasising the other side of it. The board spent a lot of time about that scrutiny mm. and got a lot of legal opinion, a lot of legal stuff. Yeah, yep. we always seem to go to lawyers, don't we? Uh, they are the other tremendously large outgoing. <laughs> <laughs> they never lose, do they? <laughs> well, in fact, one of the other areas where Fund has got a lot of advice over the years. Is tax? Yes, yes. And that is a matter which um, is regrettable but unavoidable, because governments see a large chunk of money, making money, and it might be for the benefit of working people, but um, and it might solve an employer's problem about their legal obligations, but. We never hang a dollar in front of a taxing government. Well, we should never forget that uh, Jeff Kennett uh, uh, raided the uh, coffers of the Long Service Leave Board for millions of dollars to help pay some of his debts during the 90s. Uh, I think they might have been debts from the previous government, but we'll just let that one ride, shall we? Well, <laughs> or was it to build his monument Federation Square? But anyway... <laughs> remember Paul Keating said, don't get between a dollar and a state government. 
<laughs> I, I have a number of lawyer jokes, but I'm reticent to put them to air. Uh, perhaps later on, gentlemen, I might regale you with them. <laughs> right. Now, we've covered a fair range of things. Um, is there any highlights that you would like to mention, which might in, involve some discussion, general discussion? Any highlights you think have been significant in the history of Inkalink that you think uh, should be noted in particular? Well, I, I think if we're going to keep going down the track of setting up a national fund of some sort, we have to clean up any, any of the issues that we've raised that are still problematic. And one of them was earlier on we talked about the portable sick leave scheme. We've got to fix that up. We can't leave it the way it is at the moment. Because Industry of, parties have got to fix it. Because of the cost. Mm. Well, we, we set in, in, in train the process of sharing the cost around a bit better, mm. but uh, it is not a particular benefit that is clearly and easily understood. So that's definitely one. However, I would like to suggest one matter that has been a long-term benefit to the industry which flies under the radar big time and that is the services that are provided by the councillors and that has now developed into a direct involvement with the Blue Hats campaign in the industry. There have been so many people that I've had contact with over the years who have benefited from counselling, marriage counselling, Gambling, drug and alcohol, suicide. Suicide now is front and centre because Mm. it is a huge problem in our industry, more than any other. Just on top of that, don't forget phosphate checks, health checks, blood pressure, skin cancer, skin cancer, all and 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 the service is done at at the workface. I mean, Inkalink go to the workface and do it on the site, and employers. Line up too to get postrate checks and things that that has been magnificent. That I, on a personal level, I think, other than achieve a standardisation and the effective payment of redundancy and severance, that particular service, which is not provided by government to the extent necessary, is probably the outstanding achievement of the last twenty years. I wouldn't disagree with that. And, and, and the government recognises it, the, the Blue Hats in particular. They oh, do. It's about time they recognise some bloody thing. Because, because everyone's governments of all kinds have been critical of unions and employers sitting down and working out a deal. Right? There might be a bit of pushing and shoving over the years, but we always end up doing a deal. It's the art of the possible. But I just think that maybe we need to promote ourselves as a combined fund in these areas a bit more. Can't disagree with anything you've said, Rob. Agreed. I only invited you along to nod your heads today so I could have my say. (laughs) But anyway, I'm only joking. The aspects that you would think are notable that you'd like to mention? Well, I I, I just think that... um You've made a good point, and that is that we have to promote what IncoLink does in a more systematic, more simple, straightforward way where people can understand what it does rather than it, 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 it comes out in, in little bits and pieces and dribbles out here and someone hears about that there and whatever. It needs a more 
sort of concentrated effort to sell its concept and where it came from. And in particular, it's, an, it's a, a creature of not from the not so much emphasising the uh, the 80s and and the conflict area that it come out of, but where it is now in 2023, 24, coming up to 2024 that it is a, a consensus between employers and unions working together for a, an outcome for the industry? Well, Interlink started as a redundancy scheme. Now it's a an, basically insurance scheme for workers 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. I mean, workers are covered for 24 hours, seven days, and it, it is magnificent, some of those insurance. Ambulance cover, accident cover, all, all those things we've been talking about. So Interlink has gone from a redundancy scheme... To, to a social scheme where we, it, it, it's, you know, it, it looks after workers and their families for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't know of any scheme in this country or throughout the world does that for workers. And anybody who's been involved with Interlink the last 20 or 30 years should be very, very proud of what we achieved. Including you, Brian. Um, I think I said that at the beginning. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and have been uh, obviously a participant in it and know more about it than many other people, uh, courtesy of that connection. So I, I, th- I think there's also the danger in, in life and in business of trying to grow something so that you say, well, we've achieved this much, where do we go to next? Um, one must be careful about uh, where an extension of services would go to beyond this. I think we've got a, a replete um, can, um, package of, of services which service the industry particularly well. I recall once upon a time on a trip you once went on, uh, Mr Boyd, to Germany. Um, and uh, in that trip there was a, uh, a number of stories that came back. It um, didn't stay on the trip, but leaving that to one side, um, there was also this push for Inklink to go into the OHS environment based upon a German model. Um, that, would, that would, of course, challenged an awful lot of people. Challenged government would have challenged industry groups would have challenged uh, unions about their their current position and servicing of that space. That's the sort of danger zones that, that surround any potential growth to the organisation. Is will you be acting in a way which could then bring harm to the organisation or jeopardise its ongoing operation? Inadvertently, because success doesn't always breed success. Success can sometimes be just being very content with where you are and making sure you do everything to preserve it. My thoughts to you, Mr Chair. Thank you. Now, just for the record, there's four <laughs> people here. Three of them have never been on an Inkerlink tour outside of the country. One has. <laughs> oh, well, that must mean that was... Ah, oh, OK, well, moving on. <laughs> well, for the one person here, I hope... What happened on the trip stayed on the trip. But anyway, (laughs) can I make a suggestion for your consideration that one area where the fund could expand would be in the second stage beyond counselling on drug and alcohol problems. And that is to perhaps emulate... Inform, not necessarily in structure, but inform the system in New South Wales where people are actually able to go to a facility and undertake a full medically supervised program for basically 
avoiding or you're talking about the old Vaucluse that yes. used to operate here. Yeah, well, Vaucluse. I got I got a phone call the other day mm. asking if Vaucluse still operated, mm. which was for people with alcohol problems, and it's not. And it is one of the areas where a whole lot of people get involved as the experts, but when it's systematic, when there is a service which is available to everyone and everyone understands exactly what it is and it's highly regulated with safe financial backing, I would have thought that would be the next step for Incolink because drug and alcohol abuse is way over the top in, in uh, this particular country, in this state. I mean, you don't find how many tonne of cocaine floating in the uh, Pacific Ocean on its way to Australia if it wasn't for sale. So all I say is that maybe something where we could expand the, uh, the role of Incolink and I'd be interested in your responses. Well, I, I don't think you need to sell it as a, a new thing to do. No. It's an extension of the drug and alcohol yeah. regime that's in place that uh, you go that one step further. I'm, I'm taking... Brian's point in part about uh, just continually growing Incolink for the sake of it. What we need to do is consolidate what we've got so we can go into spreading uh, the redundancy fund package that we've got more nationally. Um, To me, I just sell it as an extension of the current policy. I agree with that. So... Uh, but you can never do enough to some people. It is just a, it's a dreadful, dreadful blight upon society. And, and you think, why would it happen in an industry which is as financially well remunerated as the building industry? Um, it seems to bring about its own special bit of problems, doesn't it? Money doesn't always solve problems. It creates problems. The suicide rate alone it really always staggered me about our industry. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Mm. Drugs and alcohol and gambling have a lot to do with that, that's unfortunately. Right, that's right. But it is uh, something that we can't exhaust it in this discussion, but certainly it's a matter for further work. Any other matters that you would think should be reviewed for the future growth of Incolink? I've already had my say. Thank you, Ralph. No, I don't think there is. I, I, again, I'm not. I'm, I, I'm not nitpicking. But it's not the growth; it's the sustainability yes. of Incolink. Yeah. To make it more, continue to be viable and useful. Mm. That's well, the way I look at it. Can mm. I throw another one at you? We have legislation passed in the state parliament for licensing, regulation, call it registration, call it what you like, of building trades. The rollout is very slow. Can Incolink play a bigger role in the training of apprentices? Because clearly we ain't got enough, and that has that's, that's got, got a, worse. That's that that's a very important issue. Always has been for a long time. That that's to me that's an industrial issue that the employers and unions should be talking directly at least first before you start coming to Incolink to try and find some solution. They've they've got to own that. The employers and unions have got to own that one. That's a good point. That would come from negotiations of an EBA, yeah, surely. Yeah. You know. Well, uh, for the for the, a lot of the domestic sector, there is no union, uh, and the the employers are small in size and and uh, and happy to jump fences to run away to get away from anyone that looks like they might be from the union. <laughs> um, so it's herein lies a problem about uh, skill shortage in industry, 
perversely, it, it, it's benefiting those trades in the industry. You'd think that the industry would be awash with new recruits, but there's still some sort of stigma about becoming a tradesperson in the building industry as opposed to a professional career. I could tell you which is the more lucrative, um, and that's being in the building industry. But that's a, that... Especially uh, being an electrician and not getting dirty. But anyway... <laughs> Well, that's just professional jealousy. This is, it's like the armed forces. The Air Force was always the superior one, wasn't it? Was it the no, Navy? Because they could bomb you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, that's my say. Righto. I think we've exhausted ourselves. I'm tired. I think so. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Brian, Brian and Tommy, thank you very much for your contribution as, one, directors of Inkalink, two, chairpersons of Inkalink and three participants in Creatures of the Industry. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. boys for a hard and weekly pay Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA Whether we were born here or born in Italy In Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji We all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face we're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains, and break a couple of concrete fours to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel 